Where do you start? You start by talking to people, and that's also where you end, <laughs> basically. This is Transmission, the podcast of the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp. In this podcast, we will uncover the mysteries of diseases that impact us all and delve into the cutting-edge science of keeping people healthy. We invite you to look over the shoulders of the experts who make it their lives' mission to improve global health. In our second episode, we followed researchers in the field as they try to unravel the mystery surrounding the transmission of infectious diseases. In this third episode of Transmission, we will discover that understanding humans is even more important than understanding the disease itself. Transmission, your front row seat to the world of health, science and beyond. A village on the island of Madagascar. Kathy Kreppel, epidemiologist from ITM, is setting up her tent with the help of children. A lot of children. She has found the perfect spot under a beautiful large mango tree. Thanks to this setting, her tent is in the shade and a little sheltered. After a while, Kathy and the children have gathered quite an audience. I had this whole audience, the kids putting up my tent, very happy banging things everywhere, they had no idea how to put it up, they just tried their best. But there is something going on that she can't put her finger on. At the edge of all this activity, the village elders are watching. Just standing there, shaking their heads. They watch, with the look of... When is she going to notice? But Kathy has no idea what to notice. I was new, couldn't speak proper Swahili. The tent has been set up. The grandmothers call the children back to watch the tent from a distance. The sun starts to set. And then... Snakes started falling off the tree, onto the tent. Apparently, there are snakes that crawl up a tree during the day looking for small birds. When it gets cooler, they let themselves fall down on the ground. They just slither down there and then just fall the last bit. The people of the village assumed that the educated woman who appeared in their village knew what she was doing. If she wanted to set up her tent under a tree filled with snakes, she could do that. Kathy learned two wise lessons that day. First, never pitch your tent underneath a tree. But above all... The community usually is very helpful if you care to listen. You might sometimes forget when you are analyzing virus sequences in a lab or when you are trying to track down an obscure animal in the forest that it's the people who matter most when we talk about pandemics. And it's crucial to listen to them. Or as Charlotte, medical anthropologist at ITM says... Where do you start? You start by talking to people. And that's also where you end, <laughs> basically. This is how you find out how everything is connected and how, for example, a small animal in the forest is linked to a worldwide outbreak. How small details in our behavior can affect everything. It's people that give you clues on how a disease will behave. <laughs> Tonight, we eat a hearty meal with fufu. Preparing the stew is quite simple. It starts with the rodent. You peel off the skin and then, very important, you take out the inside. You don't eat that. Here, boy. Wait a second. This sound. Here, boy. That is what we were looking for. That is the sound that prompted Kathy Kreppel and Justin Mazumu to come to this village in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in search of the source of a major Mpox outbreak in the region. Justin and Kathy know that there is an outbreak of the virus. We don't know really when this transmission happens. What is the link between the rodents that carry the virus and the people who get sick? 
How does the disease spread? That is what Justin and Kathy wanted to find out. They had been in the village for several days before they noticed it. Here, boy. While cooking, Grace throws the guts of the animal she's preparing on the ground for the dogs to eat. Doesn't matter if it's chicken, rabbit or rat. Guts out and to the dog. Sometimes the children also play with the insides and cook pretend meals for the adults. It seems like an innocent act, but Kathy and Justin knew they had discovered something, a key to the transmission of the virus. A sick animal caught in the forest or bought at the market and the guts go to the dogs or the children who play with them. Once you see it, it's so clear. And most importantly, it's something you can work with. Imagine you discover that not owning chickens is the best way to stop a virus. Then you're in trouble. No one will listen to you because chickens are an essential part of life. But asking someone not to give the guts of a rodent to the dogs, that is quite feasible. It's just an aha moment, you know, they're like, oh, we didn't know. So from now on, we will not feed that to our dogs. As easy as that. The challenge is that you have to get to the place where you can point your finger at that small detail. The moment you can say, that is the link we should look at more closely. Here is Charlotte again, medical anthropologist. So when you start every day, you, you, you get certain insights or certain access to one piece of the puzzle and it leads you to the next clue. The most valuable insights come from the people who live where the outbreak is happening. I have such different practices surrounding what we consider the most normal things, you know, um, that approach life so differently. And I learned so much from them. Humans are the most challenging factor in our hunt for clues. We often joke actually in our unit that the only thing standing in the way of malaria elimination is really the human factor. Because people can give you clues on how the disease will behave, but they can also be stubborn and act against advice or better judgment. Why would they do that? We all know the advice on how to live longer and healthier. Eat well, sleep well, exercise. To support us in our quest for a healthy life, researchers developed the happiness triangle, the food triangle, the food circle, and who knows what other shapes. So we know that it is important to exercise enough and eat less sugar. And yet, we don't adhere to that advice. The truth is that we as humans do a lot of things throughout the day that we know aren't healthy. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. Everybody does it. But the question is, why? Why do we ignore meaningful and good advice and do things we know are not smart? All over the world, we act against our better judgment. Just as it was impossible to stop Belgians from hoarding toilet paper during the COVID pandemic, it is also impossible to ask a large part of the world to stop buying food at wet markets where live animals are slaughtered and sold. It is their way of life. It won't work if you try to change those key elements. Back to your drawing board, researcher. Find another solution. And so we get the golden nugget of this episode. The ultimate treasure that often explains why people follow advice or not. The thing every researcher is looking for. Trust. Imagine your wife gets really sick and she's in the living room on the chair and you call the ambulance. You wait. And then paramedics suddenly bang on the door and enter the room in white overalls. They tell you to not leave the house for the next week. 
Nobody really tells you what's going on. Everybody's in emergency mode. People are busy discussing the situation next to your partner's bed. Would you just let that happen? That will very much depend on whether you trust those people in their white overalls or not. We come from a society where we trust the government and the systems. But imagine you come from a country where you cannot trust the system and the governments as much as we can. Research shows time and time again the problems with medical interventions have little to do with a lack of knowledge about the disease. They have everything to do with a lack of trust. In times of crisis, providing more information is of little use if you want to convince people. You need to build more trust to get people on your side. Otherwise, if there is no trust and people just storm into your house... You would get quite angry. You would try to stop them. Charlotte Grisales and Soka Suon investigate why ethnic minorities in Cambodia resist using mosquito repellent in the fight against malaria. Soka graduated from ITM in 2021 with a master in public health and is now senior board program coordinator at the National Center for HIV AIDS in Cambodia. But when he was doing research together with Charlotte, his main interest was malaria. Theoretically, mosquito repellent makes a lot of sense in the fight against malaria. Because there are no mosquitoes during the day and you sleep under a mosquito net at night, the hours of nightfall are the moment when they will bite you most. By collectively applying mosquito repellent at nightfall, there will be much less transmission and much less chance to get sick. Can't be simpler. Any child can understand. And yet, Charlotte and Soka see that people do not use their mosquito repellent. Why is that? These ethnic minorities, um, yeah, they have actually a very different lifestyle from the majority Khmer in Cambodia. The people live in the forest and are completely self-sufficient. They are often not registered as residents of the country and do not speak the language. So they have this really difficult relationship with the state, with the Cambodian government. They value their independence very much. So when Cambodian and foreign uh, researchers, uh, scientists come in and give them repellents to use every day between that and that hour. Then they don't trust those researchers' motives. Can you blame them? They associate the scientists with the authorities and trust is minimal. And so they don't put in the effort in applying mosquito repellent. The first step to do research in this setting is therefore building trust. And you do that by living in the village, working together with the residents drinking and eating together, or attending wedding parties. They feel that we are part of the villager there. This is Soka Suon, alumnus of ITM and Charlotte's colleague. And we go back and go back and go back, so they feel more confident with us, so we stay more than six months. All of this to have that meaningful conversation that goes beyond mistrust or general statements. And that is no different in Belgium. Establishing a constructive dialogue with the people who had doubts about COVID-19 vaccination proved to be a task that nobody was, was up for. And What was striking was that the conversations around the vaccination topic actually broke down trust and widened the gap between groups. While researchers had shown time and time again that scientific evidence and fact checks are not the right way to build trust, it often seems to be the only approach during a pandemic. And what I found particularly problematic and difficult to deal with as a researcher, but also as a person, um, 
this, that experts and politicians also started framing um, vaccine-refusing individuals as dangerous, as misinformed, as unintelligent, as uh, selfish, overly emotional. Conspiracy theorists, scientifically illiterate, there were a lot of negative words for people who doubted. And this naturally widened the trust gap, which created even more resistance. Seeing this in unfold in real life in my own society was quite difficult. And it was obvious for me that that's definitely not the way to approach people during an outbreak. There are no easy answers. If scientists are very transparent about their info and data, then people actually see that science doesn't produce hard truths. On the other hand, if scientists aren't transparent, people won't trust them either because they withhold information. I don't have a way to resolve that paradox. I don't know what's better. It all has to do with taking a leap of faith. When there is a crisis, the less people on different sides trust each other, the wider the gap and the bigger the leap people have to take to listen to advice from the other side. The challenge is that this gap in trust only widens during a crisis, right when policymakers and scientists ask the population to trust them to implement the proper measures. You're not relying on an anthropologist to start building trust during the crisis because that's not going to work. It takes a lot of time. We need to get used to the fact that science is always in motion and we need to invest in building trust in periods of calm, building it up step by step so we can lean on it in times of crisis. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe, who was one of the scientists who first discovered Ebola and whom we met in previous episodes, elaborates. Changing the behavior of the people is the most difficult aspect of an outbreak. An outbreak of Ebola starts most of the time by the amplification of the disease in a hospital. The second place is, is the funeral in the community. But in the community, to change the, the behavior of the population is, is very difficult, yeah, because they want to, to go and kiss the cadaver, wash the dead body, they have no gloves, and so on. To prevent people from getting sick during the first Ebola outbreaks, families weren't allowed to participate in the funeral. It was conducted by the Ebola team. This is a very bad decision in the community. And later, what we have proposed is to have the participation of the community, of the, of the affected family. So they are given protective equipment, uh, gloves, so they can take the coffin with the member and bring this to the cemetery. And, and sometimes also they, they, they will refuse the countermeasure proposed by the Ebola team. So if they not accept, this is a very, 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 very complicated situation. And there is just no quick fix for trust issues. There's no finish line. There is no, it's always kind of a very volatile process. Things can go wrong all the time. We are back in Mosquito Country. Charlotte is still looking for ways to gain trust with the residents of the remote village in Cambodia to try to find out why applying mosquito repellent is such a challenge. It isn't easy. People don't open up to her. Conversations are difficult. But lucky for her, this is all about to change. 
The downside? She will become sick. Incredibly, miserably sick. At a certain point, I got really, really inexplicably ill. And even my my Cambodian colleagues were really quite worried about me. I mean, I had constant diarrhea. I was losing weight very fast. I I had I couldn't eat anymore. I was very weak. A worrying situation. But then something happened that she hadn't expected. I started learning a lot about how people perceive illness. In the first months after she arrived in the village, people didn't feel comfortable talking to her about their religion about wicked witches and spirits in the woods. But now Charlotte was sick, the situation changed. The medication she got didn't work and she became weaker and weaker. People were concerned and started to talk to her. Maybe she was bewitched. By being ill, a world that previously remained invisible came into focus. Suddenly, when I was really ill myself and I was trying to find some medicines that worked, I visited basically all the little shops and the pharmacies along the road And um, then they started opening up to me about all the medicines they had, um, about all the unregulated, often fake medicines, um, illegal medicines probably, that, that they thought might, might be able to help me. Previously, Charlotte had no idea. I didn't even know that I had to ask questions about this. But thanks to her illness, she became part of the village, part of the group. The entire medical system became clear to her. Seriously, in the entire province, there was no doctor. I mean, there's maybe one health center with a nurse who has some, you know, malaria rapid tests, but there's not a lot they can do. So if you're sick, you're really kind of screwed. And then I started seeing how it completely makes sense in a way to just blame it on a witch or, you know... Uh, cutting down the wrong tree in the forest. If you can't do anything else about it anyway, then then the system kind of works to to make it more bearable. Her Cambodian colleagues were also concerned. Because they also thought, like, yeah, yeah, obviously the medicines aren't working, so you have been bewitched, you know. No one managed to make a correct diagnosis of what disease she had contracted. Was it a bacteria, a parasite, a virus or something else? Both her Cambodian colleagues and the researchers at ITM in Belgium were in the dark. After a battery of treatments, she was able to eat again. But it took her more than a year of severe diarrhea and fatigue before she eventually recovered. One of the Cambodian colleagues that helped her through this difficult time was Sambuni Uk, someone who Charlotte thanks on the first page of her doctoral thesis and with good reason. I owe everything to her, actually. During their research, ITM scientists are often totally dependent on their partners. These are usually researchers from a local partner organization who jump in and support the research project. Sambuni Uk, my um, colleague in Cambodia, who was also a medical doctor and a social scientist, um, she worked at the National Malaria Center. I just completely physically basically relied on her, you know. Sambuni took Charlotte in when she arrived in Cambodia as a starting researcher and gave her food and a room in her house. She even made a 10-hour drive to get Charlotte to the hospital when she was so sick that she needed to be hospitalized. She had dinner with me every night in the field so I wouldn't be alone. So most importantly, maybe she showed me how to go to a toilet in a village where there are no toilets and there is no water and there's no electricity. All those little things are, are very important, actually. 
we as field researchers, we also we often try to portray ourselves as these kind of Indiana Jones type adventurers who have no problem um, getting by in these difficult conditions. But it's actually it's really really hard living in a village without any electricity or water when it's um, 45 degrees out, also at night. And I, I really wouldn't be able to do it without help from um, colleagues in the country, really. Without their informal social support, we really wouldn't be able to do what we do. Again, it's all about people. Without people, nothing would work and no outbreak would be stopped. We've put together the puzzle. We've sent team members all around the world to look for the reservoir of infectious diseases, had a virologist analyze the virus in the lab, looked for the drivers that multiply the disease, and most important of all, we now have a better idea of the human factor. For important diseases like Ebola, Zika, or Mpox, there are still a lot of important questions that remain unanswered. But let's imagine for a moment that we have all the information we need all the answers to every question we are looking for. Are we now ready for the next pandemic? Let's find out in the final episode of this season. All epidemiologists were going like, oh, thank God nothing happened. But they also went like, so why did nothing happen? Why did it not go anywhere? Thanks for listening. Join us next time when we'll find out if humanity is ready for the next outbreak. For more information on the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, please go to itg.be slash podcast.